What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Pure Sports Pod. This is Matt Wyrick along with Kevin Haswell. And damn, is it a t- great time to be a sports fan. We've got college basketball's national championship today coming up tonight. MLB is just getting started. We have the NBA playoffs and NHL playoffs coming up. And of course, NFL's free agency is in full swing with the draft in a month. So anything, no matter who you root for, what league you support, Right now, it is a great time to be a fan. And Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing well. You know, uh, a little disappointed with the start of the Philly season. Uh, you know, the Braves took two of three um, from the Phils this weekend. But it's great to have baseball back. Uh, you know, best thing about the game is, uh, you know, Phillies lose. But, you know, I wake up the next morning knowing they're going to play again the next day. So uh, they play 162. I was, you know, we were talking about it earlier, I think. Keep me relax on the whole bashing Gabe Kapler uh, trains a little early for that. Uh, but, you know, I'm excited. Baseball's back. The Nats, you know, the Nats are hitting well, too. So uh, I'm excited. And, you know, college basketball, the Final Four is fun. Uh, you know, what a performance by Villanova. They basically didn't miss a shot the entire game. So uh, hats off to them. Yep, yep. And that's uh, on the reverse side of things. Dave Martinez looks like an early candidate for manager of the year. Uh, we're already 3-0, and having swept the Reds. Of course, the Reds are the Reds and not a great team, but, you know, it's always good to get the season off on the right foot. So Nats are rolling. The offense is doing well. Adam Eaton looks great returning from ACL injury. So happy to see him back on the field. And man, was it tough to see Loyola go down. I mean, I know Michigan was coming in as the heavy favorites, but Loyola seemed to be the underdog in every game it played um, and had a lead going into halftime, but blew it in the second half um, in a big way, almost by 20 points. And so we're going to go ahead and just jump in to the March Madness here. Uh, Kansas uh, Villanova ended in a 95-79 route uh, for Villanova. Uh, Paschal led the way with 24 points uh, for Villanova, whereas Devontae Graham had 23 with three rebounds and three assists for Kansas. Uh, disappointing run, uh, end to a fantastic run for the Jayhawks. Uh, this squad entered the tournament without... Um, despite being a one seed, maybe is probably the most underrated one seed, didn't get a lot of credit uh, for their performance this season. I mean, they did just finish up a 31-8 and run. Um, but, Kevin, what stood out to you about this game? And, and, you know, Villanova's back. Are you surprised at all? No, you know, I, I think coming into the tournament, a lot of people probably would have said UVA was the best team uh, in the tournament. But I, I think Villanova is showing down the stretch um, clearly the best team in the country. I mean, they put that game out of reach in the first five minutes of the game. I mean, they went up 22-4. It looked like they couldn't miss a shot. Uh, I believe they started six for seven from three or something. Uh, ended up being, you know, shooting right around 50% with 18 made three-pointers. But you know, they went up 22-4 and didn't look back. And, you know, you listen to Bill Self after the game, and he was almost, you know, helpless uh, with explaining what happened because, you know, they went down. They fought hard, but, you know, you go down 22-4 to early, and the team can team you're playing continues to make shots I mean it's tough uh and hats off to Villanova I think you know I know we're going to talk about this later but you know obviously they're going to be the favorite in the championship and they should be I mean one through five they're they were hitting three pointers um and they've lived and died lived and died by the three all season but you know through 39 games they've won 35 of them so uh, it's clearly working. Yeah, I mean, you got to give credit to Jay Wright here, leading the best offense in the nation at 86.8 points per game. And coming out of a conference that had two number one seeds in Xavier and Villanova, um, with several um, teams that we see often in the tournament in Seton Hall, Creighton, Providence. I mean, this is a bit a deep 
conference here, um, and for Villanova to emerge with you know such a good offensive rating, uh, you know it, it's it's honestly not even surprising at this point. We've come to be accustomed to it with this squad. Uh, they've got to be the favorites going to this championship game. I mean, we'll get to Michigan in a minute, uh, but you know after taking down a one seed, um, something Michigan hasn't had the opportunity to do, obviously with. Um, all the um, upsets that have happened in this tournament. Uh, it really shows the grit of this team. I think, you know, they were able to jump out to an early lead, finished half the first half at 15 up, and never really looked back. So, you know, Kansas certainly didn't enter the tournament as maybe being seen as one of the bigger threats, but having been a one seed, making it all the way to the Final Four, they were clearly, you know, obviously led by Bill Self, one of the better teams in the tournament. Um, but Villanova shut them down and, and didn't really give them any chance of making a run at, at possibly run, going to the championship. So uh, great game for Villanova, but also great game for uh, Michigan here. I mean, Loyola had all the national attention, uh, was given, you know, basically everybody's uh, rooting interest. Uh, but Michigan was able to overcome a seven-point halftime deficit to really run away with things in the second half, outscoring Loyola 47-28. to 28. Uh Leading scorer was Krutwig, uh, finished or for Loyola. Leading scorer um, was Wagner for Michigan. Um, Moritz has been, uh, you know, up and down player this year, but certainly was on today or over the weekend. Um, and just a great game for the Wolverines. I mean, you know, they entered the tournament really on fire, uh, having walked away with some surprising wins early on in the tournament. Um, and you know, at this point. Where, where can you expect them to stop? I mean, yes, Villanova is probably going to be the toughest test the Wolverines have faced all tournament, but, you know, you got to think that this team is hotter than anybody else in the country and has been for quite some time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, this game was, you know, a tale of two halves for Michigan. I mean, Loyola Chicago played that, you know, the typical style they like to play in the first half. You know, they were kind of just grinding out uh, the game um, and, and playing great defense. And, you know, I... I I know, I know I was talking to my dad about this, but, uh, you know, and there's domes. They always play these Final Four games in these football domes. Uh, and it, it makes it really hard to shoot, and I think you saw that from both teams in the first half. I mean, 10 minutes in, I think there was a combined, like, 12 points between the first or between the two teams. Um, but, you know, Michigan find the, found their stride behind Mo Wagner in the second half. I mean, he had 24 points, 15 rebounds, and, you know, while Michigan deserves to be in this national championship game and is by far, you know, a top five team in the country. I just don't see them, you know, being able to compete with Villanova. But you know, hats off to Mo Wagner. I mean, he was literally this whole this entire team's offense uh, when they needed him the most. So, you know, Beeline has done a, a great job with this program uh, the last couple of years. I mean, this is their uh, second Final Four, second championship game in the last six years. So. Um, you know, great, great win for the program. And, uh, you know, Mo Wagner, uh, what a game for him. Yeah, I mean, entering this tournament, we were kind of talking about, you know, what is the best conference in college basketball? It was a hot topic on the pod. And it, it seemed like we narrowed it down to the Big Ten and the ACC. And here we are um, with a Big Ten team that maybe we weren't, you know, we'd had them on our radar for sure. I mean, but we were looking at Michigan State and Purdue um, as really, you know, the biggest threats to going all the way here, but here we have a Wolverines team that entered the season unranked and really wasn't considered to be, you know, one of the better teams, even in their own conference. Uh, for, so, so for them to make a run like this, I mean, it's just awesome to see. Yes, Villanova is going to be the favorite, and I mean, making the smart pick here, I think anyone in the right mind would go with Villanova to get the win. Um, but, but you know, I don't think Michigan really 
you know, is a, like an underdog here. I mean, they're still a great scoring team, um, can pull rebounds down when they need to. I've been impressed watching them throughout the, this run here. I mean, you know, while they haven't beaten a number one team at all, they've still beaten Florida State, Texas A&M, Houston, I mean, all of whom were, you know, top nine seeds in the tournament. So I'm personally pretty impressed with this team. Uh, and I, I think, you know, they definitely stand a chance here. This is not going to be some lopsided victory for Villanova. It's going to be a tough one. Um, not that we haven't seen Villanova pull off tough wins before. Um, a few uh, national championship uh, buzzer beater comes to mind. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this has been pretty cool to see. Uh, and I don't know. I'm, I'm rooting for Michigan here. Uh, but I think Villanova is going to pull out the win. Yeah, I, I got to go with the same. I mean, the only way I see Michigan winning this game is playing more of a defensive game. I think, you know, if they get into a running gun type basketball game, I mean, I think Villanova runs them out of the gym. I mean, Kansas tried to do that for a half last night and fell behind way early and, you know, never got back in the game. I think, you know, even though Michigan's one of the you know best offensive teams in the country, Villanova's by far the best team in the country on the offensive, offensive end of the floor. So, uh, I think, you know, it, it'll come down to whether Villanova can be as successful from three as they were in the Final Four game. I mean, if they make 10-plus threes again, I mean, I think they win this national championship easy. But uh, I'm interested to see, you know, the matchup between Spellman and Mo Wagner because that's, you know, going to be a key uh, matchup down low because, you know, Mo Wagner just abused Loyola Chicago on the boards, especially the offensive boards, uh, multiple times. So uh, it'd be a really interesting uh, battle to watch. Uh, Michigan's got some great guards too, so we'll see how they handle Jalen Brunson. Uh, but you know, it's it's going to be a great game, and I'm excited to watch it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of minutes played, the top seven players on Villanova's roster all shoot 35% from three or higher, and six of them shoot at least 38%. So, I mean, this is going to be a very high scoring game. You know, we've been seeing a lot of low scoring matchups. Uh, recently in the tournament, uh, it seems like, you know, it's been kind of slugfest almost, uh, lots of rebounds and um, not a lot of three-pointers, but, you know, if Michigan's going to want to hang with, with Villanova, they're certainly going to have to shoot. I mean, this was a low-scoring game, uh, 69-57, particularly in the first half. Um, Michigan was held to just 22 points before breaking out for 47 in the second half. Uh, they, you know, they can't afford to get off to such a slow shooting start here, um, especially with guys like Jalen Brunson um, and Michael Bridges leading the way for Villanova. I just can't see Michigan, you know, if they get into any sort of, any sort of slump, really hanging around here. Yeah, no, it's going to be a really tough matchup. Uh, I mean, like I said, I mean, a lot of these teams live and die by the three. And, uh, you know, when they're not making shots, they end up losing. So, you know, while Villanova has, like you said, six or seven guys that shoot over 35% uh, from three-point land, uh, you know, if they have a rough night, I could see Michigan coming out on top. But, uh, you know, I've been watching this Villanova team all year, and I just, you know, I see them, you know, making 10-plus threes and, you know, winning this game by, uh, you know, 5 to 10 points. So what's your final score prediction here? Uh, I'd probably say Villanova 81-75. 81. I like, I like Michigan's defense. I don't know. Um, if I think Villanova gets doesn't get to 80, but, you know, I'm going to say 76-74. I think it'll be a close one for sure. Um, but, you know, with that you know, tandem of guards that um, Villanova has. I just can't see them losing. Um, but yeah, the game is tonight. We're actually recording this on Sunday, so technically it's tomorrow for us. But for all of you listeners, the game is tonight. Um, we'll be looking forward to watching it, as I'm sure all of you will be. Um, and I always find it funny how the NCAA has tournament games on Monday nights. 
Um, both college football and college basketball have their championship on Monday nights every year. And I think part of that probably is, you know, to discourage kids from getting too rowdy when they're watching their teams. But I'm sure, you know, the teams uh, in Ann Arbor and um, over at Villanova, the fan bases are going to be going crazy. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, a game for the ages. I hope it lives up to the last time Villanova was in the championship game because that was probably the best ending I've ever seen in a college basketball game. Uh, with Curtis Jenkins in that buzzer beater uh, after Marcus Page tied it up with, you know, the most awkward three-point shot I've ever seen. So um, if it can live up to that or anything close, I mean, I'm, I'm just excited to see how it turns out. Yes, sir. All right, well, that'll wrap up our portion on college basketball. Be sure to follow our college basketball Twitter at PureSportsCBB. Uh, for constant updates throughout the game, I'm sure they will be very active um, as the game goes on. Now, over in Major League Baseball, we've had our first uh, couple of games here. Basically, every team has played a series, three to four games. Um, and we've had some teams, I mean, you know, small sample sizes, obviously, too early to make any kind of, you know, major takeaways here. Uh, but Kevin, what stood out to you so far across the league uh, in terms of success, failure, uh, anything like that? You know, I've seen, you know, we're seeing as, just as many home runs as last year. I believe they're on around the same pace. Um, so, you know, that's definitely, you know, something to watch. Um, but, you know, the New York Yankees is, you know, a team I've watched the uh, last couple of days. I've watched their scores. And, you know, they've had some bullpen troubles, which is interesting with Dylan Patances and, you know, Chapman at the back end. Um, they usually, you know, last year and the year before, they had one of the best bullpens in baseball. So, you know, we are three games in out of 162, but uh, that, that'll be a situation to watch. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed, you know, just following my Phillies is uh, there's you know, a lot of these new managers, especially Gabe Kapler, who's never been a manager at any level, um, you know, are going to have trouble with these situational decisions. And, you know, early on, there's been, uh, a lot of situations he's been thrown in where he hasn't made great decisions. Uh, so we'll see, you know, it might be a little bit of a learning curve for some of these new managers. Uh, but, you know, the takeaway has got to be the bullpen so far. I mean, a lot of teams uh, blowing leads. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I don't want to take too much stock in anything I'm saying right now because we are three games in of a 162-game season. It's really a, a sport of patience. Um, and I'm excited to see how the season unfolds. You know, I think it is worth diving into Gabe Kapler a little bit here. I mean, he's brought in as a player's manager, and, and a guy who's a little bit of an outside-the-box hiring, uh, doesn't have any previous managerial experience, you know, knows the game of baseball, obviously, but is known to be really good at working with players, good at, um, you know, very high on personal fitness um, and everything like that. And so it was kind of going to be a test here of can he handle managerial decisions within a game? Because, you know, a bench coach will have the advantage of having watched uh, his higher manager make decisions, you know, learn from that, say, oh, I disagree with that, oh, I agree with that, uh, and then go from there, whereas Kapler is kind of coming in as this outside-the-box guy, kind of like what Aaron Boone is doing with the Yankees. Um, and for him to bring in a reliever, uh, you know, obviously, okay, Phillies not being able to get your starter past the third inning obviously wasn't expected for Kapler, but for him to crack under pressure like he did and bring in a reliever um, in Milner and not even have him throw any warm-up pitches, I think believe he was still wearing his sweatshirt uh, when he got the call to come into the game. Um, you know, that's a little bit unexcusable in my opinion. No, I don't think that this, you know, looms large in terms of him losing the clubhouse or anything like that, um, but it does go to show that, you know, there is that certainly, like you mentioned, that learning curve here uh, in terms of preparing uh, for, you know, random situations that you might not have thought of, you know, have to be prepared for anything. 
uh, and certainly Kapler wasn't prepared this time around. Yeah, I mean, they haven't been hitting as well either, so you can't put all the blame um, on Kapler. But yeah, like you said, and like I said earlier, I mean, the learning curve's going to be huge. Uh, I mean, the guy hasn't managed a team uh, ever. You know, he's been a part of development, and, you know, he's big into, you know, the weight room and all that stuff. But uh, being a, you know, in-game decision-maker, uh, I think that will come. And, you know, three games, uh, you know, if you took a three-game stretch of basically any manager in baseball, you could probably find a three-game stretch where they made three bad decisions. Uh, so I wouldn't chalk this up as, you know, Gabe Kapler is a bad manager. I think it's a little premature for, um, you know, a lot of these Philadelphia journalists are out here writing all this stuff about, you know, questioning his decision-making, which is fair, but also not fair because of the sample size. It's only three games. So uh, I would, you know, halt the brakes on, on, you know, judging him right now. But, uh, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, talk about this midseason and, and see, you know, where the Phillies are because, if you know he's still having the same issues with some of his decision making by then, uh, then I think it's you know time to you know really question how he's going to be as a manager and where the Phillies should go from there. Absolutely, it's certainly going to be a storyline to watch throughout the year. Another team I want to talk about here is the Angels. Took three of four from the A's. Uh, in their opening series, and we got our first look at Shohei Otani, who DH'd in opening day, got a single, uh, went one for three, and then in today's game, I guess for all you listeners, yesterday's game, uh, pitched six innings, did allow a three-home run to Matt Chapman, um, but retired 14 of the last 15 hitters he faced, got the win. Uh, this Angels team looks pretty dangerous to me. I mean, we talked about them in our MLB preview um, about, you know, all the weapons that this team has offensively, and it really was a measure of, you know, can the pitching staff, you know, hang on? And so far, they, you know, held uh, Oakland to one run, three runs, and four runs, um, losing one game in extra innings, having to give up six. Uh, so, you know, so far, you know, Skaggs, Shoemaker, and Otani all notching wins here. This is, it's a good sign for them. Uh, they've battled a lot of injuries recently um, and haven't really been relevant in the playoff races in probably five, six years. I mean, Trout has been on the outside looking in of the playoffs for almost his entire career now. Um, and it's good to see uh, the Angels getting off to a good start here because I think this could be a very dangerous team. Yes, the Astros are the class of the AL West. Nobody's expecting them to lose the division. But, you know, the AL wild card race is as wide open as possible right now. And I think the Angels look like a serious threat, especially with Otani, um, you know, getting off to the start he is pitching. Because, I mean, if he can be a reliable pitcher once a week for them and, you know, occasionally come in as a DH, you know, two, three times a week, uh, and, and provide some power there. I mean, that is just the ultimate weapon. I mean, we talk about this guy as a video game character, you know, being able to hit bombs and, and strike out 12 guys in a game. But honestly, I mean, so far, his hitting, yes, not unrefined, but even just watching him at batting practice, this guy hits bombs. And if he can hone in his strikeout percentage and be able to, you know, at least hit even 240 and hit for 15 home runs this year, I mean, you got to chalk that up as an incredible season. Yeah, I you know I really like what I've seen. I I saw it on him today. I mean, six innings, three earned, six Ks, only one walk. Uh, you know, maybe you know would like to see less runs given up, but a pretty good start uh, to his major league baseball career, especially on the mound. Uh, you know, I like to talk about 
you know, some of the moves the Angels have made over the last 12 months. I think, you know, getting going out and getting Justin Upton last season and, you know, bringing in Zach Cosart this offseason were two great moves. I mean, uh, you bring that power bat in the middle of your lineup behind Mike Trout uh, with Justin Upton and then Zach Cozart, you know, at the top of the lineup, hitting 368 already, uh, two for five today. I really like those two acquisitions. I mean, they already have one of the best defensive shortstops in baseball with Andrelton Simmons. Cole Calhoun, Mike Trout, um, and Justin Upton's a potent outfield. And then, you know, you get some power, you know, a lower average guy, but Luis Valbuena at third base, um, you're going to get some power from him. So I like this lineup. You know, it's very well-rounded, and they didn't really give up a lot on defense uh, to make this offense where it is. The, the one question mark for me is going to be Albert Pujols. Um, you know, he struggled a lot last year. He actually left five guys on base today going 0 for 5, um, hitting 211 through four games. Uh, he'll be a guy to watch. I mean, we had a discussion about him on Visitor's Bullpen last year as you know, being one of the worst players in Major League Baseball. So that will be, you know, crucial for them, especially him hitting cleanup behind Upton and Trout. If those two guys get on base, he's going to have to knock them in. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm just not sure how good he's going to be this year. Yeah, sticking in the American League, though, my other big takeaway here is the Orioles starting pitching, um, which Dylan Bundy went seven innings, no earned runs, giving up just five hits and a walk uh, with seven Ks in the the season opener. Didn't get a decision as the Twins uh, were tied it up and Baltimore eventually won uh, on an Adam Jones home run in the 11th inning. Uh, But this is against the Twins in the three-game series. They dropped the next two with Andrew Kashner and Kevin Gausman giving up a combined 10 earned runs um, between the two games. I mean... Minnesota's offense is good. Don't get me wrong. It's one of the probably the better in the American League, especially in terms of power. Um, but if, if Baltimore is going to return to relevancy at all, they're going to need some career years and some guys to step forward. Uh, and, you know, Andrew Kashner is one of those guys they need him to kind of revert back to not even being, you know, peak Andrew Kashner um, when he was finishing the year with a 3-3 ERA and one of the being one of the better starters in baseball. Maybe not, you know, top Cy Young, of course, but, you know, reliable, dependable. They just need him really to fill innings, um, finish with an ERA around four. Um, but right now, you know, that's not looking good. And then Kevin Gow's been getting lit up. That's even more concerning because they're needing him to take a step forward this year um, to really be the guy um, that can carry this team. And then, of course, the offense hasn't scored more than two runs yet and was blank today uh, by Jose Barrios, went complete game shutout. Um, you know, he's obviously coming along as one of the better young pitchers in baseball, uh, only 23 years old right now, but a three hitter um, with a lineup that has guys like Manny Machado, um, Chris Davis, and uh, you know, up and down, they're they're supposed to be a pretty deep lineup. For them to only go score four runs in the entire series, that's concerning to me. So yes, I know small sample. Uh, you know, don't want to overreact here. But the Orioles, I think it's important that they get off on a hot start, especially with such a tough division ahead of them in the Yankees and Red Sox really controlling this division here. And then the Blue Jays kind of middling in the middle. Although Josh Donaldson's shoulder may be concerning down the line, so we'll see what happens with the Jays. But You know, the Orioles right now, they kind of just look all over the place. They barely scratched across the win in opening day, and they just don't impress me. And now they've got seven games against the uh, Astros and then Yankees uh, coming up with a three-game series against Toronto, then a four-game series against the Red Sox. So things are really going to be tough for them early on. And if they can't get off to, you know, a decent start here and win a few games in Houston, win a few games against New York, I just don't see them really being able to ever climb back, back into the standings. Yeah, I mean, you know, the lineup, the last couple of years, the lineup's been what's carried them. Uh, and so far this season, they have one player hitting over 200, uh, with Manny Machado hitting 400 so far this year. And, you know, Chris Davis hasn't notched a hit. 
uh, Kobe Rasmus hasn't uh, notched a hit. I mean, this lineup is struggling, and you know, in the past they've been able to get by uh, with you know a struggling rotation because of the ability for their lineup to you know put up seven eight runs in a game uh, and really cover up a Gosman start where he gives up five or six runs. Uh, but so far this year, I mean, they looked pitiful on the plate and. Um, uh, Saturday, I mean, they went up against Kyle Gibson and made him look like he was, you know, an ace. I mean, they he walked five um, over six innings, and you know he had to come out because of pitch count. But they they weren't able to notch together a hit or a run, uh, five walks. I mean, come on. I mean, look at look up and down their lineup with Chris Davis, Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope, Adam Jones, Trey Mancini. I mean, those five guys by themselves are like is, that's one of the best top fives in baseball. And, you know, the fact that they're not putting it together so far this season is very concerning. Uh, they're going to need that lineup to come around if they want any chance of being relevant this year. My final uh, takeaway here is Kyle Schwarber is going to be a problem defensively. I mean, we saw an opening day where he had two huge blunders in left field. Um, you know, they moved him from catcher to give him uh, a chance to stay healthy uh, and help him prolong, you know, his his offensive career because he was considered one of the up-and-coming guys uh, for this team. And so clearly on the defensive side of the ball, even though he's cut a lot of weight over the offseason, this doesn't look like it's going to be necessarily paying dividends for him defensively. He still has a lot to learn. However, offensively, he's already been on a tear, hitting three thirty-three with two home runs, 13 total bases in his first four games, um, and only three strikeouts, which is, you know, Schwarber is a guy who – Low average, high power, high strikeout total. Um, you know, he's not even leading the team right now. A couple of guys ahead of him. Uh, you know, I think that's really, you know, showing a step of maturity for him after getting demoted to the minor leagues last year, having a bounce, you know, up and down between the majors and minors. Uh, and for him to really never able, never being able to really get it going. This, for me, shows that Kyle Schwarber, I think he's real. I haven't been fantasy, so, you know, I'm a little biased here, but I really think that Schwarber uh, could be the real deal offensively. Um, you know, losing Ben Zobers uh, offensive production last year was huge for them, and obviously Schwarber taking a step back as well. Um, but they didn't have Schwarber the year before because he tore his ACL was out for the entire season. I think with Zobers still aging, they need another guy to step up and be a middle-of-the-order bat, and I think Schwarber can be not only what Zobris was, you know, in terms of getting you know hits. I think Schwarber can be the guy with power, with Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant really bringing together. I mean, obviously Sanchez, um, Stanton, and Judge in New York is the biggest power trio in baseball, but Bryant, Rizzo, and Schwarber. They're up there too, and I think that this they could hit, you know, at least twenty-five to thirty home runs each, um, and we could honestly see the trio break 100 if, if a hundred if one or two have a career year. Yeah, I mean. The Cubs lineup last year was part of the reason that, you know, it took them so much uh, to make that playoff run. I mean, they did end up going to NLCS, but the lineup took, you know, half a year to come around. Uh, and, you know, it is it is good to see Kyle Schwarber um, already with, a, you know, over 1,200 OPS through four games, uh, 333 average. I mean, two for four today, uh, even though they lost six to nothing to the Marlins. I mean, up and down this lineup, I, I really... You know, I could see, you know, Anthony Rizzo is going to come around. He's only hit 150 so far. Um, but, you know, if they can get production out of Jason Hayward and Kyle Schwarber, two guys, you know, at the corner outfield spots, um, you know, that they really need to hit well. Uh, I think this Cubs team can be really good once again this year. Um, and like you said, I mean, they have, you know, well, you didn't say this, but, you know, they have a lot of depth. Um, I mean, today they had Lestella and Ben Zobris, uh pinch hit, so they weren't even in the starting lineup. And, you know, I've always liked Javier Baez. 
Um, I think he's going to be great. I mean, he's only hitting 067, but a lot of these guys are going to come around. Um, you know, my one of my uh, favorites for you know NL MVP has got to be Chris Bryant. I think he'll come around as well. So, you know, I, I really like what the Cubs did this offseason. And you know, while they might have um, you know split with the uh, last the future last place Miami Marlins, I think this Cubs team is going to be scary down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was funny. Last year, uh, in 2016, Chris Bryant was almost unanimous for MVP. Only had one writer uh, out of the 30 possible writers not vote for him for MVP. So 29 out of 30. And then goes into 2017, finishes 7th in Cy Young voting in MVP voting, yet finishes with a higher batting average, higher OPS, not as many home runs, of course, uh, and that was honestly the biggest factor, but more doubles, uh, much more walks, and a, a better strikeout rate. I mean, he improves his uh, game in a lot of ways. Maybe didn't hit as many home runs, wasn't driving in as many runs because the offense wasn't hitting as well around him. But he honestly had a more well-rounded year last year. Uh, and so, you know, he's only 26 right now. He is going to be taking huge steps, I believe, you know, in the next few years as well. I don't think we've seen the last of Chris Bryant being among the best players in baseball uh, and, you know, certainly not um, done seeing among the best third basemen. So, uh, yeah, the, the Cubs, while they did split with the Marlins, I'm not too worried about them. Uh, I personally think they're going to be finishing with the best record in the National League this year, uh, and it's going to be because of this guy, Chris Bryant. I mean, he is another world talent, and um, it's just so much fun to see him play. Wow, you think they're going to have a better record than the Washington Nationals? I think the Nats finished with the third best record in the National League. I think the Dodgers and um, Cubs are going to be one and two. And I honestly think the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. And I forgot to tweet out all my predictions. Unfortunately, I, I meant to do that. But I do think the Dodgers beat the Yankees in five. So for what it's worth, uh, I don't think the Nats are going to be making it past the NLCS. I think they do finally break uh, the streak of not winning a playoff series. But I don't think they're going much further than that. See, this is why we host a podcast together. I got the Dodgers over the Yankees, too. <laughs> Look at that. You know, that's that podcast symmetry Twitter, right there. So. <laughs> Yours is on Twitter. Well, I didn't match it, unfortunately. I do have it in my notes with the date saved at the top, so I have proof. But, um, you know, <laughs> well, if it comes to that, um, we shall see. But anyway, um, that's baseball. We have so much more, and we'll probably be talking about it all season as Kevin and I Love to talk MLB. We will certainly be diving into more topics um, as the season goes on. But for now, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Cubs looking good and Angels looking just as good right now. All right. Hall of Fame NBA selections were made on Saturday uh, to decide who will be making it to the Naismith National Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, this, of course, doesn't just include uh, NBA players. It's college. It's international. It's WNBA. It's all basketball players. It's just simply the basketball hall of fame, uh, which is pretty cool because they get to take in, you know, you'll look at the MLB hall of fame. You'll look at the NFL hall of fame. They only really take in account your stats in terms of the NFL and the MLB. They don't look at what did you do in college? What did you do overseas? What did you do, you know, as a coach for uh, this certain program? The Basketball Hall of Fame is very unique in that it takes a look at everything that you did. And so four NBA players that we're going to focus in on here were mentioned. Uh, Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, Ray Allen, and Grant Hill, all of whom uh, are among the better players in NBA history. Maybe not Grant Hill, but we'll get to that in a minute. I want to start with Jason Kidd. Kidd uh, played at California from 1992 to 1994, won the 1994 Pac-10 Player of the Year Award, um, and was a number two overall pick by the Mavs in 94. Won co-rookie of the year with Grant Hill, uh, NBA championship in 2011 with the Mavs, 
uh, Olympic gold medalist twice. I mean, Kidd is considered one of the best passers in NBA history, finished second all-time in assists, only behind John Stockton, who's widely considered one of the best point guards to ever play the game. Kevin, what is your take on Kidd? I mean, obviously an otherworldly talent, um, winning an NBA championship. He was you know, a major factor in that. I mean, this was just, you know, a prolific passer in the height of, you know, offense really starting to take a turn towards where it is today. Yeah, I mean, what a career for Jason Kidd. Uh, you know, player efficiency rating of 18 throughout his whole career, um, you know, spanning over uh, 21 seasons. I mean, geez, the guy did it for years. Um, finishing, you know, averaging for a career average 12.6 points, uh, 8.7 assists. Uh, 6.3 rebounds. I mean, what what a career. Um, you know, some of his accolades are, are ridiculous as well. A 10-time All-Star, 5-time Assist Champion, 6-time uh, All-NBA, 9-time All-Defensive. Um, he was the 1994-1995 Rookie of the Year. You know, what a great career. And, you know, he was one of those players down the stretch, uh, really evolved his game um, to be able to shoot the three-pointer a little bit better. So, you know... Hats off and, you know, well-deserved. Kid won that Rookie of the Year award, 1994-1995. Kevin, do you know he actually won Co-Rookie of the Year? And do you know who he won it with? I did not know. It's Grant Hill, his fellow oh, inductee. So, so kind awesome. of... It's kind of funny how Rookie of the Year never really seems to be an in indicator of necessarily, you know, you're going to be a Hall of Famer. It's a nice title to have uh, and certainly an important accolade if you're a rookie. Uh, but in terms of the grand scheme of things, we see a lot of rookies flame out after two, three, five, seven, whatever years. Um, but Kidd and, and Hill both went on tears. Um, and there's also another connection between Kidd and Hill. Um, in Hill's fi or Kidd's final year uh, playing for California, he went to the second round of the, or actually went to the Sweet 16, um, but in the second round beat Duke uh, in the NCAA tournament, uh, ending a run for them of back-to-back -back, uh, tournaments uh, in terms of winning it all. Grant Hill was on that team. So Kidd and Hill have kind of had um, careers that have kind of gone back and forth. They both played on the Suns. Um, actually, three of the four players that have got inducted, including Nash, played on the Suns. So um, you know, good for Phoenix getting all of these guys into the Hall of Fame here. But, um, you know, kid, otherworldly talent. Nash, of course, uh, honestly, a more recognized player, uh, kind of was the face of the NBA for a while. I mean, he's almost, you know, he won back-to-back -back, uh, MVPs uh, back in, um, what was it, 2004, 2005, 2005, 2006. Uh, it was kind of like you know what Steph Curry was uh, for a couple of years and, and being, you know, the face of the NBA, the face of success. Um, never did make it to the NBA Finals, and that was kind of, you know, the biggest drawback on him. But, you know, he did come out of nowhere. Steve Nash, he grew up playing soccer in Canada and didn't start playing basketball until he was about 11 or 12. Uh, went to Santa Clara University, wasn't getting a lot of looks, um, but ended up finishing with two WCC Player of the Year awards, made the NCAA tournament three times, and then was picked 15th overall by the Suns. Um, and finished third time in the assists just behind Kidd and Stockton. So uh, he, you know, had a fantastic career, a guy that kind of came out of nowhere, led the league in free throw percentage twice, assists five times. Uh, you know, what a career for Steve Nash. He's very deserving. Yeah, definitely very deserving. I mean, uh, towards the end of his career, it was kind of sad. I mean, he got traded to the Lakers, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of promise there. 
Um, but then, you know, the back injuries really derailed the rest of his career. But 14 points, eight, eight assists, three rebounds a game, uh, player efficiency rating of 20 for his entire career. I mean, eight-time All-Star, uh, Jason Kidd, you know, also had five assist champions or championships, and so does Steve Nash. Um, you know, what a career, 14 um, 14 points a game, like I said, for his career in 18 seasons. That's just consistent as it gets. The best was watching him and Amari Stoudemire in that pick and roll. I mean, that's one of the best pick and rolls in NBA history, and you know, it's something I'll never forget. Yes, sir. And then there's Ray Allen, a two-time NBA champion, once with the Celtics, once with the Heat, both very memorable NBA finals. Um, went to UConn in college, Went played from 1993 to 1996, won Big East Player of the Year, made three 16s and won Elite Eight, was finally picked number five overall um, by the Timberwolves. Um, you know, he kind of was considered, you know, one of the better shooters only fin- finished with a shooting percentage from behind the arc above 40% eight times in his career. I mean, you know, not necessarily, I wouldn't say, the greatest shooter of all time. I mean, you know, a, a lot of shooting guards, I think, have been much better than him. Uh, but I think, you know, in clutch moments, Ray Allen came through, um, was a winning player, played for a couple of great squads, um, and I think certainly deserving of a Hall of Fame nod. I'll have to disagree with you on that one. You know, I think Ray Allen's one of the best shooters of all time. Definitely up there with the likes of Reggie Miller and Stephen Curry. I mean, I still think Reggie Miller and Stephen Curry are better. Um, but, you know, throughout his career, the consistency from three. I mean, I was re-watching, actually, the other it's kind of coincidence, but I was re-watching Ray Allen's game, uh, game-tying three-pointer against the Spurs in the finals. Uh, with the Heat, and, you know, what a memorable shot. I mean, he did that consistently throughout his career. Whenever a team needed a three, he was there. And, you know, I, I really miss Ray Allen. I mean, he had the kind of a quirky shot, and it always went in. And, uh, I mean, when he left, I know he has, like, a bad relationship now with Rondo and, and Garnett and Pierce because he left the Celtics uh, for the Heat. But, you know, at the end of the day, he went out, he got another championship, and, you know, what a career, uh, what a shooter, and uh, well-deserved. No, I mean, I'm definitely saying one of the best three-point shooters of all time. I mean, he has the most threes ever made um, by over 400. I mean, that's pretty incredible, but I think in terms of shooting percentage, um, maybe not necessarily the best shooter um, but as far as volume goes, I mean, the guy was behind the arc just waiting to, to catch the ball and shoot um, as well as anybody. Um, a fantastic spot-up shooter, so, you know, definitely well-deserved. And then finally is Grant Hill, uh, played small forward, a guy who maybe isn't, you know, put in the same category um, as far as, you know, Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, Ray Allen. These guys, their names pop off the page. Grant Hill might not be talked about as much. Um, I actually Googled his name before the show, uh, and it was... Uh, the first headline that came up said film producer named to NBA Hall of Fame. And I was like, wow, the fact that Grant Hill, an M- a Hall of Fame player, is being referred to as a film producer rather than an all-NBA talent uh, is pretty incredible. But, you know, he had such promise coming out of college, went to Duke for four years, won ACC Player of the Year, back-to-back national championships in 91-92, picked number three overall by the Pistons. Um, and, man, did he run away with it, won co-rookie of the year in 95, a five-time all-NBA player. Unfortunately, um, like Nash, never made it to the NBA Finals, but 
you know, was a great all-around player, um, kind of played back and forth between shooting guard and small forward, was able to shoot, but also drove the ball extremely well. Um, and, you know, I, I think an undervalued player. He may not have finished, you know, among the top players in player efficiency rating. A lot of knocks on him was that, you know, his PER was kind of low for a Hall of Famer. Um, but I think, you know, definitely up there in consideration, uh, deserved to be, you know, in the conversation at least. Uh, and good for him to get it because, you know, uh, obviously he had all the attention coming out of Duke. But as far as, you know, his career goes, he doesn't really get the NBA attention of fans that guys like Ray Allen, Steve Nash, and Jason Kidd did. Yeah, a little fun fact. Uh, Matt and I are actually from Northern Virginia. So Grant Hill actually went to South Lakes High School, hmm. um, which, what'd you say? That's wild. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, it's right near us. Um, and he also played at Duke. I mean, what a career at Duke. But, yeah, like compared to the other guys we talked about, not as great of an NBA career, but, you know, still deserving of, you know, a Hall of Fame uh, inductee. And, you know, what a career for Grant Hill. Uh, you know, I I still appreciate what he does. Um, you know, I always like when a player uh, has the ability to, you know, end their basketball career but still be, you know, go into broadcasting in some sorts uh, and be great at what they do. And, you know, he was one of the guys that now uh, – he was one of the color guys for the Final Four yesterday. So uh, hats off to him and his broadcasting career um, after a great playing career. Yes, sir. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our show on in iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Pure Sports Net. Check us out on Facebook at Pure Sports Network. And look at our website at puresportsnetwork.com. I'm Matt Wyrick. This is Kevin Haswell signing off. Kevin, any last words for the good people? Hey, trust the process. Even without Joel Embiid, the Sixers are still winning a playoff series. We shall see. They just tied the Cavs to the number three spot in the East. So, you know, who knows? But hope you all enjoy the uh, NCAA tournament. I'm Matt Wyrick. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a good one. Thanks, guys. Thank <laughs> you.